Good morning, church. It's my privilege to uh, be in the pulpit this morning. We're continuing our journey through Psalms, and last week Bryce preached a cracker uh, on impenetrable joy from Psalm 16. And if you have not had a chance to listen to that yet, I want to encourage you to check it out on our website. Um, It will be a blessing to you. Please turn to Psalm 37. This morning we'll be looking at the first five verses only. You can take a a deep sigh of relief, those of you that know how long that psalm is. And uh, my sermon title is When Christians Lose. So I find the flea story interesting. We live in a world where winning matters. People will do anything to win. And the Christian world is not all that different in that regard. Look at the bestsellers, How to Live Your Best Life Now, or a Christian country selecting their president of his famous, there's going to be so much winning speech. Winning matters to us too. We'd be kidding ourselves if we said that it didn't. This is why the prosperity gospel flourishes. It's why many sick Christians believe that God will heal them. Not he can or uh, open to what he might do, but they believe, almost demand, that God must and will heal them. And to be fair, God does bless his people financially, though not all. And God does heal his children, though not always at least not in this lifetime. It can be especially difficult when we compare ourselves to non-believers and we see that they are flourishing while we're, we're struggling. Our psalm this morning deals with these issues. It's written by David. He's an old man. How do I know he's an old man? Well, in verse 25, which we won't read today, he says, I have been young and now I'm old. So that's how I know And uh, that means he's writing from a place of wisdom and experience. He's lived his life. He's had his fair share of winning and losing. He has lived in the palace and he's lived in the wilderness. He has been loved by many and hated by many. He has known both God's favor and God's discipline. And he opens this psalm by dealing with one of life's great big questions. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? We have probably all asked this question at some stage. Some of you may be asking it this morning. And in verse 1, David tells us two things we should not do in response to this question. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So I've highlighted the two. Oh, it doesn't show up as highlighted. It shows up as bold. But you've got the bold in the actions we should not do. Do not fret. The Hebrew word used here literally means to burn with anger. David is saying, do not burn with anger because of evildoers. Do not envy them. And normally when we are given the instruction, do not, it's because we have a a carnal temptation towards doing those things. Think about your children. Most of the do nots you give them are the things you know they want to and are probably going to do, even after you tell them do not. 
We typically tell them, don't jump on the bed. We don't tell them, don't take a flight to Argentina. Although that might sound like we would like that, we know that they can't, within their power, go and won't typically go off on a flight to Argentina. And so we tell them to not do the thing they're probably going to do. And David's telling us not to fret because he knows that this is a normal response to seeing other people doing really well when we are really struggling. He says, don't envy. He's warning us against common temptations. In our carnal thinking, we can get angry when we see those who could not care less about God or his kingdom in this lifetime, and we struggle. Anger and envy are common temptations when we look at life without an eternal perspective. In verse 2, David reminds us to remember just how fleeting this life is. For they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. I want you to think of two oxen. Let's call them so that we relate to them. Let's call one Bob and the other one Jack. Okay? Bob is in the green pastures. He's not a working oxen. He just eats. He's gotten fat off the good stuff. Jack is wearing the yoke. He's pulling hard. He's lean and he's tough. And he looks over longingly at Bob. Bob sitting in the sun, eating the good stuff. Looking at my wrong notes. Uh, Bob eating all the good food. Bob looking fat and healthy. And Jack never thinks to ask the question, who is getting eaten for supper tonight? The working ox is going to continue to work the next day because that's his use to the owner. But the fat ox is being prepared for something. The ox doesn't always know what the end outcome is going to be. And David reminds us that life is short and it doesn't matter if the wicked prosper in this lifetime because what is their end? We must remember as believers that this is the closest we are ever going to get to hell. Think about that depression, the financial struggles, the sickness, whatever those sufferings are for us, and they're different, but we all feel them to some extent, this is the closest we will ever get to hell. And for the, believer, uh, for the unbeliever, who might seem to be flourishing, this is the closest they're ever going to get to heaven. We should not envy temporary gain that comes at eternal loss. But life is not just short for the unbeliever. Life is short for us. There's a, a warning here for us as well. Our life is also like grass. It comes up and it withers and it's gone. We do not have much time here. Not as much as we think we do. And so after telling us two things we shouldn't do, David moves on to tell us four things we should do in response to this big question. In verse 3, he hits them, bang, 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 bang. I'm going to 
spend a little bit of time on each one. The first thing David says is, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. When I did my prep for this word, it was very interesting. The picture for trust here wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It was a picture of a man lying prostrate. When you're prostrate, you're flat on your face. Even your arms are extended out. You are helpless. When I play fight with my kids, um, while I'm standing, they love to hit me a little bit, but they're a little bit wary of me because I'm bigger than them. And every now and again, I do hit a little bit. I'm trying to toughen Sebastian up a little bit, you know, so give him a little, uh, a little knock now and then. Um, when, 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 I'm on my, when I'm on my knees, he, he's emboldened because now the height advantage, it's actually turned in his favor. When I'm on my knees, he's taller than me now. When I'm flat on the ground, Livy and Sebastian are merciless. That's when they charge, jump, and they go berserk because they know this is the moment where dad is the most vulnerable, the most helpless. They love it. As soon as I'm flat on the ground, it'll be two seconds, I know, they are on me. And there's this picture for trusting in the Lord here of a man lying flat on his face with his arms extended out before the Lord, utterly helpless, totally dependent on God and what God can do. I can do nothing. And we throw around this term, trust in the Lord, and we say, I'm trusting God for this, and I'm trusting God for that. And I'm doing that as well. Right now, there's certain things Anita and I are trusting God for. And I was really challenged by this, because what is my posture as I say that? Am I yet at this place of utter and total dependence? Or am I still helping God out in the background? I like to do that. I'm trusting you for this, Lord, and work really hard to help God get that thing that I'm trusting him for. That really challenged me. But it's not a passive faith. So it's not just lying and being utterly helpless. There's that aspect of it where I'm totally dependent on you, God, and trusting you and putting my faith in you. But now David follows it up with the second instruction, and that's, and do good and do good I get irritated when there's an overemphasis on and maybe irritated is the wrong word but I hope that you'll hear me here when there's an overemphasis on prayer at the lack of action the two need to go together I'll give you an example of what I mean when I was on the mission field um, I was heavy on, I go out, I meet uh, Muslims, I share my faith. I share my test. I did that regularly. There was another person on our team who was big on prayer, and you sh we should be. Please don't hear me that I'm not. Uh, I admired her prayer life. But she never went out. So I guess we were a good team. <laughs> she did the praying, and I, I, I did the, the hard. But I, I challenged her in that. I said, you can't just... Ask God to move powerfully here and reveal himself and just stay in your room. You've got to do that, pray as if you haven't gone out, but then you've still got to go out because that's important. And we don't want passive faith that we just sit back and do nothing. David's calling something out of us here where he says, and do good. Be obedient to what God is showing you to do. In my relationship with God, when he speaks to me, he's often telling me to do something. Not always, 
Sometimes he is revealing his character to me. Sometimes he's revealing my character to myself. But often he's telling me something specific he wants me to obey him in. And that's the good that we need to be doing. Spurgeon sums it up so beautifully. He says, here you have the secret of the active life of the Christian. The root of his activity lies in his faith. And the outward manifestation of his inner life is in the good that he does. So in other words, do you want to see the trusting in God and the inner life dependence on God? You're going to start to see that in the outworkings of the actions. Are you discontent because of the struggles of this life? Put your faith in God and be actively obedient to Him. Put your faith in God and be actively obedient to Him. Spurgeon again says, the joy of holy activity, so we spoke about joy last week, the joy of holy activity drives out the rest of discontent. The joy of holy activity drives out the rest of discontent. If you are discontent this morning, I would put it to you that this might have more to do with your lack of holy activity than your lack of earthly resources. If you're discontent this morning, it might have more to do with your lack of holy activity than your lack of earthly resources. Yes, we might be looking across at the bobs of this world and going, why me, Lord? Why have I lost so much? But actually, I think your discontent's coming from a deeper place than just your possessions. The third instruction is to dwell in the land. I was tempted in my preparation, and I'm sure Matt won't mind me saying this, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> too late. I was tempted in my preparation to say, God's telling you guys that are thinking of emigrating, dwell in the land. Stay here. Now, that's not what is actually happening here, although God might say that to you this morning. Um, what the land that um, is being spoken of here is the promised land. So the Israelites lived in the wilderness for decades, and that was a land of need and complaint and turmoil and struggle. And then they were promised this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and a land that if you'd walk in God's promises and be obedient to Him, you, it would be a land of rest. You would find your rest there. So, He is referring to the land of the promise. Your rest and contentment is not dependent on your earthly comforts. It comes from your relationship with God. I grew up observing wealth. I had it in my own home, and the friends of the family were even wealthier. Some of the wealthiest people I've ever known. They were so discontent in their wealth. They had it all, and I just saw unhappy conversation after conversation. The guy would buy his fifth home, move into it, and then something would go wrong next door, and he would just, when you visited him, moan and say, I have all of the worst luck, and he'd use a bit worse language than that. That's how you talk. I remember my mom, who we were thriving financially. They were doing so well, but she would often come home 
And she's put all of her hope for the day, after her tough day at work, all of her hope into this KFC box. I want to find an element of joy here. And then it's not made well, and it's a bit greasy, and she can't even enjoy the bite. And I remember her tossing it and going, even this is disgusting. She was so unhappy in every aspect of her life, and she couldn't find even a moment of joy that she was looking for in the KFC box. Jesus promises us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is what it means to dwell in the land. It means to dwell in the space of this covenant relationship you have with God. The God who says, come to me with all of your burdens, all of your anxiety, all of your labor. Give it to me and rest in me. Enjoy me. Spurgeon says this. This challenged me to do with our Father's Day this morning. He says, He who has heaven in his heart will have heaven in his home. And when I read that, I suddenly thought, I wonder if Sebastian and Olivia feel like they get a taste of heaven by living with me. (laughs) And I was challenged by that because I agree with him. I think if I, the more I carry heaven in my heart, the more you're going to get a taste of heaven when you live with me. And God's calling that into this relationship we have with him. He's saying, this is what it means to be in relationship with me. It means to rest. It means to enjoy me. Dwell in the land. The fourth instruction is to befriend faithfulness. And if you uh, look at your notes at the bottom, okay, I'm using the ESV, so different translations translate this differently. But the second way the ESV could have translated this uh, in the notes at the bottom was uh, feed on faithfulness. God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. He will feed those who trust in him. David is speaking from experience. Those who have walked with Jesus a long time know that at many moments we are faithless. If it's hard to be faithful, I'm in trouble. But even though I'm faithless, He is faithful. He remains faithful. Are you tempted to pack it in? Are you tempted to give up? Every believer faces a crisis of belief at some point. David's call to you this morning is... Befriend faithfulness. Stay the course. You will find that he has never left you. He has been feeding you this whole time. In my darkest moments, when I feel like God is the furthest away, it's coming out of that side, and sometimes it takes months. I look back. I always look back and realize he was there all the time. And Mark isn't still hanging around here in church because I'm so faithful and loyal. No. God won't let go of me. He is faithful. We used to sing a song, Jesus, lover of my soul, Jesus, I will never let you go. I'm not so sure that lyric is true. What is true is that He is faithful. He will never let go.
So those are the four things we should do when we're struggling with this question. Trust in the Lord, but a deep sense of trust may be deeper than you've ever known. Um, do good. Now, let me look over there. Do good. Be obedient to what he's telling you to do. Don't be passive. Be active. Dwell in the land. Enjoy your relationship with him. Rest in him. Hand over your burdens to him. Often we don't let go of them. That's why we wrestle with them for so long. And befriend faithfulness. Remember, he is always faithful. He's there. He can keep you in the palm of his hands. My second point this morning is getting what you really want. And I was hoping that they were going to slant the word really because that's where the emphasis is. Getting what you really want. Because the famous verse that you all know is coming up. I'm going to read it to you. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's tempting to put the second part of that verse first and make it the most important. So that's where you think, okay, how do I get what I want? Lamborghini, Lamborghini, Lamborghini. Okay, all right, to get the Lamborghini, I have to delight in the Lord. God, you make me so happy. God, I worship you. Where's the Lamborghini? Okay, um, what we're doing when we play that game is we're taking the, I get what I want as most important and let me find the way to get there. And David doesn't structure the sentence that way. The emphasis of the sentence isn't on getting what you want. The emphasis on the sentence is, the actual command in the sentence to you is to delight in the Lord. It just so happens that when we do that, a consequence of delighting in the Lord is the second part of the sentence. But it shouldn't be our focus. Our focus should be, how do we do the first part? Let's learn to do that. Once we are delighting in God, our priorities will change so much that our initial desires may, long, may no longer be relevant. That's why they're actually unimportant. By the time you are delighting in God, your priorities change so much that your initial desires are irrelevant. You won't even want them anymore, so why are they your focus at the start? How do we delight in the Lord? To delight in someone means you desire to be in their presence, to hear their voice, Think of a young couple in love. They always want to be together. They rearrange priorities so that they can spend even more time together, not out of duty, but because they delight, they are delighted to be in each other's presence. When I started dating Anita, my priorities changed. Liverpool, I don't care. Bulls, schmools. And after last night, I feel the same way. If you saw the Bulls game last night. Friends, see you later. Now, I'm not saying that we should live unbalanced lives, but that's how I felt. It didn't matter to me. Roland was my best friend. Didn't see him for a while. <laughs> what mattered, how I had rearranged my priorities, was Anita. And it wasn't a burden, and it wasn't a duty. It was my delight to do that. It was not hard for me to shift on any of those things. I was delighted to be in her presence. But delighting in the Lord, let's be fair, if we're going to compare it to a young couple in love, it's far easier in our humanness to delight in things we can touch, see, taste, hear, smell. 
it's much easier to delight in those things. The challenge with God is he doesn't have skin on. But it can be done. I want you to listen to the scripture. If I don't have it up on the screen, I apologize. I really want you to write this down then. Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16. Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16 says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I want to read that again because you don't have it in front of you. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. That phrase, the way he's phrased it, your word became, suggests to me that it was not always so. That when he first started finding God's words and eating them means he read them. Okay? When he first started reading them, there was probably a, a time, a process, but it became so much that he started to love reading the word of God. And he delighted in it and they became the joy of his heart. This has been my experience, church. My delight in God's word has grown the more I've fed on it. And my delight in God's word has dwindled the more I've slacked off from it. I can relate to both of those experiences. It is not as easy to delight in something you can't see, touch, taste, hear, or smell. But it can be done. And we see examples of that in God's word. I'll give you a real life example. There's a lady in our church, I won't name her. When I first met her at the start of last year, she had recently recommitted her life to God. She was getting back into the swing of church, worship, Bible reading. She was a baby in the faith. Even though she'd been a Christian a really long time, she had never been discipled. And Sterling was a new church for her. So I don't know her previous church, but she had not been discipled. She had never read the Word, never really engaged God in prayer, just been a Christian a long time, and now meets me at the start of last year and starts asking me some basic questions. I gave her some counsel on how to read scripture. I recommended some worship music to her to listen to. She asked for that. She's had an extremely difficult time with her health. I recently called her. So I've known her just over a year now. I recently called her and marveled at how her faith had grown. Despite being desperately ill for many years, she clearly loves Jesus and trusts him. Just before I called her, I'd read some scripture that I knew was for her. And I couldn't even get the words out as I was speaking to her over the phone because I was realizing just how precious this faith was that she was holding to through all of the trauma and difficulty she's gone through. Family, an absolute mess. Health, an absolute mess. A baby in the faith a year ago. And she responded after I shared what I had read to her to say, Mark, I've just been reading scripture. I want you to hear that. I've called her. What has she been doing? She's just been reading scripture. A journey she started last year. Continuing a year later. And the scripture that she read to me was... 100% in line with the scripture I read to her and it was confirmation of what God had been saying to her 
and she cried over the phone too. But her faith, it was so evident. What hadn't been there a year ago, now it was there. She loves God. She has spent this year in her suffering spending time with him, reading his word, and God's word has become a delight to her, a joy to her. Great will be her reward. She might not last much longer here, but I know that people are watching her and seeing her faith grow despite her circumstances. And I've told her, great, your reward will be great. To delight in the Lord is to desire to be near him, to be like the Old Testament saints who cried out, my soul longs for thee as a parched land. Psalm 143 verse 6, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. This was the scripture she read to me. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73. When we delight in the Lord, we come to understand more fully that the nearness of God is our good. Psalm 73, 28. And that, as Julie shared earlier, a day in thy courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Psalm 84, verse 10. As we learn to delight in God, we will desire even more to be daily in His presence. For in His presence, last week's message, for in His presence, literally before His face, is fullness of joy. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with songs. That's why we sing these songs. Confident that he will make us glad with the joy of his presence. Indeed, as the writer of Hebrews says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, may find grace to help in a time of need. How often are we in a time of need? I want to suggest, if I look at my own life, a lot. Perhaps all the time. There's a story of a certain airline pilot He had a peculiar habit. Whenever he took off from his hometown, he would ask the co-pilot to take the controls. Then he would stare intently out the window for a few moments. After a few of these trips, finally the co-pilot's curiosity got the best of him. So he asked, what do you always look at down there? And the pilot said, you see that boy fishing on that riverbank? That was my fishing spot when I was a little boy. And I used to fish at that spot, and planes would fly overhead, and I would look up into the sky and go, I want to be a pilot one day. Then he sighed. And now I'm looking at that boy and wishing I was down there fishing. Are you so sure that what you want is what you really want. Because that story I think we can all relate to. You're somewhere, you want to be somewhere else. You get there, you want to be where you were at first. Getting what you want isn't actually what you want. What you want, those desires are so low level, by the time we get there, we're so disappointed in them. In my preparation for the sexual purity course, I read a book by Michael Cusick. It's called Surfing for God. When I first um, read the title, I thought he was a surfer. 
but he was a porn addict, a sex addict. And God set him free miraculously from it. And he wrote this book, and the pitch is interesting. And it's called Surfing for God. And it's not surfing in the beach, it's internet surfing. And his premise, what he's putting towards you and me when he writes that book is this. When you are surfing on the internet for porn, you are actually surfing for God. Because porn cannot satisfy. You are looking for something in a deep way to meet a need, and it doesn't matter how much you look and look and look and go, you are never going to get satisfied. The porn addict is actually, he doesn't realize it, but he is searching for God. And he will not have his satisfaction met until he finds it in Jesus. The only way to get your heart's desire is to find your delight in God. He is the deepest desire of your heart and mine. My final exhortation this morning, and my last point, but we'll go through it quickly, is verse 5. David says, and it's almost a good way to respond to the message, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. That word commit means to surrender. Surrender your way to him. I don't know what your way looks like. Our ways are all a little bit different. And they're not usually the way we want them to be. I don't know if your path is straight or crooked this morning. I don't know if um, it's harder than the path you would have chosen. But like David is saying to you, I'm, I'm asking you, trust him. Surrender to him. Stop trying to change it. Embrace it, what's in front of you. Embrace the fleas. If God is putting them there for his glory, often the road that we're walking is broken. It ends up bringing him glory. When the Christian loses, the right response is, God, I submit to you. Whatever you want for my life, let it be that way. I've got a beautiful hymn that I want to read to you. It will be up on the screen. Deals with this and sums it up beautifully. Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be. O lead me by thine own right hand. Choose out the path for me. Smooth let it be, or rough. It will still be the best. Winding or straight, it matters not. It leads me to thy rest. I dare not choose my lot. I would not if I might. But choose thou for me, O my God, so shall I walk aright. Take thou my cup, and it with joy or sorrowful, as ever best to thee may seem, choose thou my good and ill. Let's close our eyes. The worship team can come up. As we just spend a few moments pausing and meditating, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what 
um, what is the one thing from the sermon this morning that he's wanting you to take home with you? As you consider your life and your level of contentment and the things that you are struggling with, perhaps this morning God's asking you to surrender. Perhaps instead of changing the circumstances, he's asking you to trust him in those circumstances. Perhaps this morning he's asking you to be helpless before him and to trust him that he will act. Lord, this morning we, as a church, want to say to you, we love you. We know that you are good. And we're asking you to help us, Lord, as we walk these roads, these broken roads in our lives. That whatever you've got in front of us, Lord, help us to embrace it. Help us to trust you. Help us to grow in our faith. To find our delight in you. If you're struggling to delight in the Lord this morning, a good place to start is to just be honest and admit to Him. And it's the Holy Spirit within you that helps you to do that. Maybe you need to just say to Him, Now, Lord, help me to find my delight in you. Lord, would you make your words the delight of my heart again. May I find joy in it again. May I be like Jeremiah, that I can say it has become a joy and a delight to me. Thank you that you speak to us. We are in a relationship with you. You are our Father. We are your children. You're not absent. You are present. You are near. And you're everything that we need. Help us to surrender our way to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Let's respond in a time of worship to our King.
morning we want to thank you lord that you have called us to yourself that you have revealed your wonderful glory to us and and lord we ask that we would desire you more we sorry lord that so often we run to things that are fickle and invaluable for our pleasure but you have given us the fullness of yourself and and so we ask lord as a church that you would stir in us by the power of your spirit a, a, a deeper desire for jesus that we would long for you, that we would pursue after you, that we would come and enjoy you as Father. 
And Lord, we ask that the outworking of that would be that we trust you in every area of our lives, that we would do good, that we would dwell in the land and find rest in you and know that there is a faithfulness in you that is far exceeds anything else. And so, Lord, stir us for more of you. Stir us to live a life for you for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.